Hello, and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm your host, Bonnie Davis. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our own institute faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research in this exciting field of science. On this edition of Regeneratively Speaking, we are joined by Dr. Teresa Woodruff, an internationally recognized medical researcher in human reproduction and oncology, with a focus on ovarian biology, endocrinology, bioengineering, and women's health. She is the Thomas J. Watkins Memorial Professor and Vice Chair for Research and Chief of the Division of Reproductive Science and Medicine in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Woodruff is a Dean of the Graduate School and Professor in the McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. She is credited with coining the term Oncofertility and founded the Oncofertility Consortium at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. She also is founder and chief of the Division of Fertility Preservation and founder and director of the Women's Health Research Institute at Northwestern University. Welcome today to Dr. Woodruff. Thank you very much. Great. So um, I had a chance to hear you speak about your research earlier today, and it was just really fascinating overall. So, of course, you know, that's what we're going to talk about. Good. But I thought uh, maybe um, because this podcast, the audience uh, is all over the board in levels of understanding and interest in science. Um, how would, if you were asked at a cocktail party what you do for your work, mm-hmm. How would you describe it? Well, I talk about the fact that my I'm most interested in the female ovary. I'm interested in understanding how the ovary works on a monthly basis, how we have ovulation once a month, menstruation once a month, and how that continues to coordinate over 50 years of life. And uh, so that's what gets me excited every day um, about coming to work is trying to understand that fundamental biology that's never been really fully described before. Okay. And so is that where your interest always kind of was when you got into um, science and research? I've always been interested in um, in discovery research. My very first time in graduate school, I rotated in laboratories that were interested in yeast biology and heat shock genes. And then the third rotation I did was in a reproductive science lab of Kelly Mayo and uh, Nina Schwartz. And it was then that I became fascinated by this notion of the hierarchy of the follicles. And a follicle is the fundamental unit of the ovary that contains a single egg. And so I really became fascinated by the fact that we didn't know why one follicle might ovulate when a woman is 19 and it's May. And one sitting right next to it wouldn't make that same journey for five or 10 or 20 years. Uh, And we think about the menopause and the lifespan of uh, the reproductive cycle being relatively short. But when you really think about it, all of our follicles are in our ovaries from the time of birth. And they have to be metered out over time. So it's really remarkable we have as long a reproductive lifespan as we actually do. And so really understanding the basic rules of how follicles are selected Um, has captivated me since really, I guess, the sixth month of the time I was in PhD program, and I really haven't changed since then. Okay, I can tell you're very enthusiastic about it. So while I knew that females are born with all the eggs that they're ever going to have, that idea about 
who goes when. Yes, I, I had not ever really given that any thought. Right. Like, so there's some follicle that's the first out, there's some follicle that is the 100th out, and there's some follicle that's the last out. Mm-hmm. And we really can't tell the difference between those. Hmm. And we're really not sure why one will activate at a particular time. And and that fundamentally is going to help us understand better about how our reproductive system works and then ultimately uh, how we can uh, help for young cancer patients or women with other reproductive uh, diseases. Wow, that's really, really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to become a scientist overall? I think I saw a, a clip of you online um, where you talked about an experience in like maybe fourth grade? Yes, or, my mom you went to camp. Well, my mom was a first grade teacher. And so in the summer, she would teach summer school. And so uh, at one of these, she would she had a big um, kind of tub of dirt and we were planting things. And, you know, I became very interested just in the science of the seed and how the seed would grow. And, you know, there were worms in there and it just all became fascinating and interesting. And um, so just curiosity, I think, is one of the fundamental phenotypes of a scientist. And mm-hmm. so that I had. Um, I also became interested in science by going to our local science and industry museum in Chicago. And there were baby chicks that were being born. And so that was fascinating. Who knew I would ultimately work on eggs down the line? Right. And then uh, in Illinois, and I think like many places, there are state science fairs. And I did a state science fair on um, chicken feed, looking at the impact on the on the egg. And Really, like, I ha- like for different kinds, different of chicken kinds feed. of chicken feed, and how it impacted mm-hmm. the the um, integrity of the eggshell, and you could never have imagined. I mean, fast forwarding to now, that all of that would add up to um, to this kind of life. And in fact, I hadn't added it up until I went to a Illinois State Science Fair um, champion dinner, and I was giving remarks, and I was thinking about this and it's really important that uh, we continue to give our kids these opportunities because you never know what spark will happen that allows them to then have um, either a life in science or a life as a leader and uh, these are really important early imprints. Right and because that word imprint is uh, so important because Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have thought way back then that eventually this is where you would land and do right. the kind of work that you are doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. I really believe that uh, little little imprints on a person's life can really change the output in, uh, in remarkable ways. Exactly. I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, what you consider the central mystery of reproductive biology and what you are doing to solve it. Well, the central mystery to me is, as I said, how individual follicles, and I anthropomorphize, make decisions why one will be the first follicle that is activated and one will be the last. And we really don't have an idea of how that hierarchy is established, Um, yet it's necessary for us to be able to have the longevity of our reproductive cycle. If all our follicles grew at one time, we would be out of luck by, you know, very early in life. So this process of, of allowing some follicles to be sustained in a dormant stage without growth over decades of life really is a remarkable process. And um, I think that's something we still need to study more. Well, we, we have no answers. It is still a mystery to us and we have to develop more tools to be able to even understand it. And how does all this play into um, your interest with um, cancer and fertility mm-hmm. and 
protecting that for people. Right. So one of the ways this is my work is important is that oncofertility is fertility management for young cancer patients. And so um, we have just a remarkable advancement in the biologics and the treatment for young cancer patients such that they're now surviving their disease in increasing numbers. But as a consequence of these life-preserving treatments, their fertility can be threatened. And if we think about it early enough, there may be ways that we can intervene to um, ensure that down the line they could have both the family size that they want as well as the endocrine health. The uh, other part of ovarian and testicular function is testosterone and estradiol. And so we want to be able to have um, patients survive their disease with their hair follicles and their ovarian follicles intact. And so that's really the fundamental uh, mission of uh, oncofertility. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you've probably already really hit on it, but um, is there a particular aspect of the research that you do that you enjoy more than others or something that you particularly lights you up when you are in the lab or? Well, I love discoveries. I mean, a scientist very rarely will have a true discovery in the lab. And, um, you know, we've had a couple of these. One that's most uh, remarkable is um, this thing we call the zinc spark. And so that is a true discovery. There was no reason to even look for zinc being released from an egg at the time of fertilization. And uh, it really was a serendipitous outcome of a conversation my husband, who happens to be a chemist, and I had about zinc in sperm. And nobody had even thought that zinc would have any kind of a role within the paradigm of follicle of oocyte maturation and fertilization. Yet uh, it is the key signature of fertilization. And without this change in zinc, before and after fertilization, you can't progress to an embryo. So um, I think in science, one of the neatest things, the reasons it's kind of Pavlovian is these occasional bells get rung and you just uh, get excited to go back into the laboratory. Sure. And uh, so uh, I don't know that I'll ever have another true discovery. Again, most of what we do builds on something that either we or others have done in the past, but that was it. And it's, uh, it's really an exciting, exciting uh, area for future work. It sounds like it, but isn't it interesting though, that if you weren't married to that particular I know. person. How many other discoveries have gone <laughs> on? Yes, Because, that's right. uh, you know, it was a, a conversation that you had um, that sparked the whole right, thing. Right. right, we were walking on the beach, and in fact, he asked me a question about uh, zinc and sperm, and I said the three most unfortunate words in my life, I don't care. <laughs> and then after that, we went back to the lab and studied. I, I told him that, well, it was not the zinc that I didn't care about. It was really the sperm. And uh, let's go back and see if there's something in the egg. And so we did that. And I think what that means, and to me, the lesson of um, science is that there are many opportunities for new and important discoveries, and they are generally at the intersection of fields. And so um, that's one part of it. The second part is I rarely learn anything by talking to myself. And so I think we have to discuss very broadly, and we have to be... um, um, interested in going wide as well as deep right and so really reaching out across technological areas to solve problems is of course something that we think about as the common way we use interdisciplinarity Um, but we also uh, benefit from those common conversations about problems and maybe sometimes just those conversations spark a new discovery exactly and I understand that there's a uh, famous author who referenced your work in one of her latest novels yes Jodi Picot's um, New York Times best-selling novel the spark of life is uh, has uh, took its title from the zinc spark and uh, 
lists uh, that discovery there. That was pretty exciting when I heard from my program officer that that had happened. I haven't read the book yet. I still want to read the book, but uh, I think it's just great that, uh, and I, I did find where my work was listed. So That's awesome. it was very exciting. Yeah, she's a, she's a good writer. Yes. Oh, I wanted to ask you about um, your um, efforts for reproductive health education yes. and the website that Yes. One of the things I'm have. really passionate about is ensuring that everyone, all of us, understand reproductive health and our reproductive anatomy in a way that uh, is empowering. Sometimes we hear, particularly during political cycles, kind of stupid things being said about reproduction. Yeah. And to me, um, at first I'd get a little bit upset, but then you know I realized we have to educate better. So Reprotopia is a website that is um, reproductive health from K to gray. And it has a whole series of modules from coloring pages for kids, uh, five and six-year-olds uh, with Timmy the testis and Olivia the ovary, um, to a series of um, uh, little tunes. It's like conjunction, junction, what's your function? If mm -hmm. any of you learned how a bill became a law, you're going to love the, the songs and the lyrics for puberty, menstrual cycle, and anatomy. And I think if kids could simply get used to these terms, we didn't shy away from any terms of reproductive science. Um, and we also um, you know, weren't just talking about having sex or sexuality. The fundamental basis of our bio biology of our reproductive body is something that we need to understand. And I think eventually, once we understand that, then we can make decisions about how we use those reproductive organs. But in the meantime, the lack of knowledge is really hurting um, so many people's lives. About 10% of women have polycystic ovary syndrome. A lot of women have problems with menstrual cycles. Young boys will have nightly intromissions and not understand it. And um, when you Google words or terms, you get to very unsavory parts of the web. And so what we try to do is have Reprotopia as one of those sites so that you can get answers in a way that is meaningful to you. It sounds really, really neat, and I wish it had been a resource that I had known about when I was uh, raising my kids up. Well, uh, grandkids. Well, th that'll be a few years off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What kinds of things do you like to do when you're not working or oh. if you're in the lab? Well, I like the Chicago Cubs. Ah. I also am a, a cellist from when I was a child. I don't play any longer, but the Chicago Symphony is another thing that uh, my husband and I love to go to. And the third thing is we love to garden. Oh, we garden and we cook with everything that we grow. So those are our, those are our real passions in life outside of uh, the laboratory. Those sound great. Those sound great. You you kind of touched on a little bit with your curiosity of science and how you kind of got started down down this um, track. But is there anybody in the science field who particularly inspires you or um, or has, has had an impact in your, in your work? Well, my original mentors were Kelly Mayo and Nina Schwartz, and they still are icons. Nina passed away this year, and Kelly is uh, uh, still at Northwestern, which is where I did my graduate work, and just really exceptional leaders. Um, they um, were very um, um, dedicated to graduate education, making sure that as we went from really having no idea how to ask critical questions to being able to generate our own data and uh, results and then discussion and conclusion that um, they allowed us to grow over time and um, they really have been an inspiration for me. That's nice. I wanted to ask you about what your hopes for your research are 
in the next 10 years? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the promise of basic science in medicine is that tomorrow's patient will be treated better than today's. And so within the area of oncofertility, that means that I hope tomorrow's cancer patient, first of all, has better treatment so that they don't have any off-target effects. Uh, so neither their hair follicles nor their ovarian follicles would be damaged by that life-preserving treatment. Uh, but until then, um, what we need to do is to continue to develop strategies to ensure that every patient has a fertile future um, with full endocrine health. And so um, trying to develop additional strategies to provide um, that gonadal function back to um, children who've had um, sterilizing um, cancer treatment is something that we're really passionate about doing over the next decade. And last but not least, um, for the young scientists who might be listening to this podcast, what, what kind of advice do you have for someone as they pursue science? Well, for the young person, um, if you're really interested in science, get into a laboratory. There's so many people who just will open their doors wide, and you just have to ask. And um, sometimes uh, um, you, you're not asking to do the science, you're asking to be in the lab. And um, you might end up washing dishes and um, doing other tasks, but in so doing, you get aligned with people who are really asking those questions. You can watch and learn how science is done. And uh, eventually, you'll get invited into the problems that we're all trying to solve. And so I think that's a great starting point for anybody who has interest in science. Um, and I, I look forward to seeing so many more young people in this field. It's one of the most exciting areas for um, anybody who's intellectually curious that I can imagine. Very good. So is there anything in particular that we didn't uh, touch on that you would like to talk about for our last couple of minutes? I think that was really good. I'm really excited about the Reaperpedia is one of the ways that more people can gain access to the information about reproduction, but everything else is really exciting, I think. Great. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Woodruff. Uh, we appreciate her time. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wakehealth.edu backslash WFIRM or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.